Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast, focusing on the BSG response to the coronavirus pandemic and on the recent BSG guidance on the next steps when recommencing gastrointestinal endoscopy in the deceleration and early phase recovery phases of the COVID-19 pandemic, which can be found on the BSG website currently, and a link is under this podcast. My name is Dr. Philip Smith. I'm an associate editor and former trainee editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and currently a consultant gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital. And I extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Catherine Edwards, BSG president and consultant gastroenterologist at Torbay Hospital, Torbay, Devon, and Dr. Ian Penman, BSG vice president endoscopy and consultant gastroenterologist at the Royal Infirmary, Edinburgh to discuss the recovery phase BSG guidance. Firstly, thank you both so much for doing this podcast. Um, It's a very stressful and pressurized time, so I appreciate you joining me today. Congratulations on the guidance that you produced together with a team of experts. I'm sure I speak for all BSG members in the UK when I say this, that how grateful I think everybody is for your outstanding leadership at this very difficult time, one of great change. And indeed, in, in many respects, um, although the last few months have been a time of great uncertainty, I feel that possibly the next few steps feel even more certain with the pr- pressures to reopen services, especially endoscopy services, whilst knowing that COVID-19 is still in the community. With this in mind, Catherine, do you mind me asking you to give an overview of the guiding principles and caveats that form the basis for the restoration of services document. Thanks, Phil, and thanks to Frontline for asking us to do this podcast. I would, if I like, just to take a minute to thank Ian, Colin Reese, and the BSG Endoscopy Quality Improvement Group, the BSG Endoscopy section, and of course the BSG Exec uh, for their enormous amount of hard work uh, in producing this document. So I think you've asked me to outline some key messages, some caveats and the principles around this new guidance on recommencing endoscopy. And I agree, this is a real, really uncertain time for us all. If we look at the key messages uh, coming out from the sequence of BSG guidance over the last six weeks, I think there are a few points that trump others and and the first is the need for early senior clinical triage in pathways either to escalate or defer activity if necessary uh, on a case-by-case basis the second is the use of biomarker stratification to aid priority setting and we're told that further advice on this at national level will be produced both in england and in scotland And finally, there's an emphasis on tracking and tracing all this triage decision-making in order that the outcomes subsequently can be audited. And this is clearly laid out in the original service recovery documents in Appendix 5. And it just means that what we're doing now will be able to be analysed and then will inform our future service planning. The guiding principles, I think, remain the same as they have always been, and that is to optimise 
patient outcomes by trying to reduce as much as possible unintended harm, to protect staff and patients, and to use resources sensibly and responsibly for the greatest benefit. The caveats, of course, remain this, these issues around the availability of supply of PPE and the availability of screening and testing. And in this document particularly, we've recognised this balance between screening, the availability of PPE, and of course, the changing prevalence of COVID-19 in our communities. Thank you, Catherine. I think that's very clear, um, the, uh, the guarding principles and caveats. Ian, um, could I ask you to explain the principles of how to protect patients and staff uh, specifically talking through the uh, excellent summary diagram that you've developed uh, during this guidance. Thank you, Phil. And again, I, I reiterate my thanks for inviting me to take part in this podcast and, uh, and for Catherine's kind words. Uh, Catherine played a huge part, as did the BSG exec, in helping shape this final guidance. And uh, I'm very grateful to, to Catherine for that. So... Um, this is complicated and we're, we're living in a, a time of a new disease uh, for which we don't have good solid data to guide us as to the best path to take. The principles of protecting patients and staff are that the public and patients need to have trust that it is safe to come into an endoscopy unit and undergo procedures, that they'll not catch the infection, and staff need to have confidence that working in endoscopy is safe. And so resumption has to encompass strict infection control measures based on best practice and advice we've had from colleagues in countries like Italy and China who were affected very badly much earlier than us. There are patient-related factors, and that's what I'll talk about, uh, and there are procedure-related factors. Uh, and then there are more complex issues around, for example, the supply and sustainability of the supply of PPE. And so um, in trying to come up with this flow chart to summarize what is a very complex situation, um, you know, the, the journalist 100 years of the American H.L. Mencken said that for every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. And, and I think we accept that this guidance is meant to be pragmatic. Some of it lacks a really strong evidence base, but we think it is workable. And I'll just go through it now, if that's okay. Um, so the first element about it is to try and screen patients for symptoms. And back in the days of the original SARS, uh, outbreak in Hong Kong and, and, and the Far East. There were criteria developed that are sort of summarized as FTOC. But this is a different disease, and we don't know that these FTOC symptom criteria actually work. And so a team worked on developing some using sound epidemiological principles uh, and came up with the, nothing to do with me, the Scots criteria. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful to Boo Hai, my colleague at King's in London, uh, and James East in Oxford, who kind of led this bit of the work. So has the patient had symptoms? Have they had contact? What's their occupation? Have they traveled? Or are they shielded? 
Now, these have to be validated, these criteria, but they are based on good epidemiological principles uh, and, and, and are easy to apply in practice. And so the recommendation is that uh, units should contact patients somewhere between three and seven days before a planned procedure and, and go through these symptoms and also ask about respiratory symptoms uh, and other clinical features of, of COVID. And once that's been done, that should allow us to, to develop scenarios. And as in the flow chart, you've got a scenario where you have no testing uh, available for your patients. Uh, and that might be the case in some parts of the country. And those patients will therefore, we, we, we can't assume that they are free of COVID because we know about asymptomatic carriage and shedding before symptoms uh, develop. Unfortunately, if you have no access to, uh, to, to, to testing, then the only safe path is, is an assumption that the patient could be carrying COVID. And at that stage, that unfortunately, until more evidence comes along, will mandate, we feel, the use of high level enhanced or level two PPE. That strategy, however, is going to have uh, a lot of implications. It will reduce the working efficiency and productivity of the unit, and it will stretch or could stretch the limited supplies of PPE that are so precious across the whole health service and community sector in the UK. So introducing a form of testing, scenario two, would help in directing the patient to the right area and allowing us to select the use of our PPE and could allow us the confidence to use lesser levels of PPE, especially at say colonoscopy, uh, and to direct patients to either a hot area, uh, uh, if you want to call it that, uh, or if they're COVID negative to a COVID minimized area uh, of the hospital to try and keep patients with and without the infection apart. And those are the sort of fundamentals of this flow chart. And it also addresses the category of shielding patients uh, and what to, to do with them. So I think it is practical. I recognize there are some logistical challenges around arranging the testing and getting the results back, but we think it's workable. Uh, thank you, Ian. That's very clear. And um, we'll have the link to the um, flowchart and the, the guidance underneath this. There are many important points in this document. One that I think strikes me is that clearly this is not business as usual. Clearly, the number of procedures per day are going to fall. As you know, as we all know, we went into this with many places having a back backlog of cases already to, to complete. Which procedures, therefore, are going to be prioritized and, and which are not? Yes, that's a, a good point, Phil. I, I think, simply put, in the initial early recovery phase, which is where we are, this is not guidance for the long term. This is uh, interim. And to try and get productivity up again and get units running, simply put, we have to focus on patients who are at highest risk of harboring a serious diagnosis, such as cancer, particularly colorectal cancer, 
or other time-critical diagnoses like inflammatory bowel disease. We think that focusing on lower GI endoscopy should be the initial priority. They've got a relatively high yield of serious um, diagnoses, uh, especially those in the highest risk categories of the two-week weight group, but also the fit positive bowel screening patients who were paused uh, while awaiting their screening colonoscopy. And we've got to clear that backlog substantially before we try and ramp things up any further. Another group would be people who we know have complex polyps or high-risk polyps uh, for, for malignancy uh, who, who, who need to come in for either mucosal resection or ESD. Underpinning all of this, as Catherine's already said, is the need for retriage, reprioritization, and, and senior decision makers uh, looking through and prioritizing these cases uh, in, in order. There will be some upper GI patients, clearly, that uh, are on a two-week wait or urgent suspected cancer pathways who need to be done. We've put in guidance around how we think they can be handled uh, uh, safely. Um, there are some pancreatic biliary patients who clearly uh, need to be done quite quickly. Uh, it's all laid out in the guidance. There, and I won't go through them all in detail here. There are a number of patients who are of lower priority and who can wait or for whom alternative pathways are available with non-invasive testing or cross-sectional imaging uh, or deferred surveillance. Uh, so I think we've come up with a, with a, with a plan that might work, uh, especially to target at this scarce resource at the people who absolutely need it the most. Thank you, Ian. That's, that's very clear. Um, finally, if I may, can I touch on certain assumptions that have had to be made um, in this document, such as the supply of PPE testing and so on. Based upon the experience of this pandemic nationally already to date, presumably this will affect some centers more than others. What advice do you have for, for units um, and what is the advice that you've given in relation to this? Yeah, that's tricky. So there are there are clearly assumptions here. We're working, as I said earlier, in a new field uh, and without a strong evidence base to guide us. I think we've taken, this is consensus advice. It's a collaborative effort. We've rapidly evaluated what evidence there is that's available. Uh, we studied the science of the transmission of the infection as best as we can understand it. Uh, and we're trying to follow best practice. I think. We accept that, first of all, different parts of the country will be at different phases of the infection, the pandemic, at different times. And therefore, this guidance needs to be seen simply as that, uh, and that units should look at it and decide what to adopt right away and what needs to be adapted to their local situation. Uh, not just in terms of where they are in the pandemic, uh, but the availability of staff. That's not just your endoscopist, but your, your endoscopy nurses, many of whom have been redeployed elsewhere uh, and who need to come back to endoscopy. 
Uh, some units have lost their endoscopy footprint. The real estate is now used uh, to house inpatients or even um, critical care facilities. That will need to come back. And, and, and really importantly, it, it'll be very difficult for some units to easily split into a hot area and a cold or COVID minimized area to separate the patients and to allow a one-way flow through the units. Uh, that's going to be a challenge. And there are different options. And I think we've set some of these out in, in broad outline in the document. Um, you might use different endoscopy units throughout a trust or a region. Uh, you might bring in uh, other providers. Um, you might do your hot or suspected patients in, in the operating theatres or a different part of the hospital. All of these are possibilities. Um, so I think the key message is this is interim short term guidance. It may need to be updated and, and, and improved uh, as more information becomes available and as we feel our way through this early recovery. And it needs to be modified according to local needs and availability. I think the other assumption is testing. Now, my limited back of a napkin assumptions on uh, calculations on this are that if we try to get up to one third to one half of our previous endoscopy activity over the coming months and we adopt a testing strategy, then rough calculations, we'd probably only be looking for about 2% of the available national testing capacity. And while that sounds a lot, it's a relatively small amount. And if that's a price to pay to try and get these valuable diagnostic and cancer diagnostic services back on their feet again, safely, safely for patients and staff, then I think that's a conversation we need to have. Although I, we, are, we are aware of the, the challenges that this might pose. Catherine um, and then Ian, if I could both ask you both a next question jointly, one after the other, about how you view the challenges ahead. So the pandemic um, may occur in multiple waves, and it's just unclear potentially how JAG assessments and approvals will occur, how um, a workforce that might get de-skilled over time might function, the training needs of our trainees in terms of getting their numbers of endoscopies, etc. Um, I'm asking you these questions separately because I'm not sure there are easy answers, and I just wanted to get your individual takes on 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 these issues. Catherine, could I start with you first? Yes, thanks, Phil. And I'm going to do that terrible political thing and just move back to uh, what Ian was saying about phased a phased process because I don't think we can stress uh, enough that our response and our recovery of services has to be phased. And the overall guidance given in the most recent documents is aiming to get service capacity up to about 75% of the old norm uh, by the, the end of the early recovery phase. And uh, as Ian said, this is interim guidance uh, and will be updated as more data become available. But to come on to an even harder question, and, and that's about the impact of COVID-19 on training. And this impacts on us greatly as a specialty because we are a craft specialty. 
then uh, I think you're right. It's I don't have any easy answers. But if we view the impact uh, in perhaps three different ways, the first is that the the impact has been of the diversion of specialty staff away from specialty practice into COVID-related uh, activity. So that's the first impact. The second is, of course, the, the overall reduction in endoscopy activity, which the BSG advocated initially as a pause, and now within that six-week pause have uh, advocated a resumption of activity within a set framework. And finally, we have to have that specific recognition that in training in COVID times, what you are potentially doing is exposing a second operator to a level of risk that you can't quantify, uh, if, especially if you don't know the COVID state of your patient, status of your patient. And of course, then you put an increased demand on PPE if you're going to have trainer and trainee uh, fully protected. So in order for that to be reversed, the first thing that's going to need to happen is that staff, including, uh, as, as Ian was saying, uh, the whole team, endoscopy team staff, have to be redeployed back into specialty practice. And that's before we can reconsider how we place training within that. And the second is that we probably need to look very carefully now at how we can increase endoscopy as a safe environment and some of what we've produced to date has addressed that in terms of uh, PPE and, and screening but I think there's more that's going to need to be done and I certainly know JAG will be leading on this in terms of uh, an improved enhanced in endoscopy environment that increases uh, protection and you might we might be looking to improved infection control procedures that might include ventilation that might include innovation in the endoscopy infrastructure space itself. And the BSG is very, very keen to work with the JAG uh, in support of developing these ideas. The second point I think is, in my personal view, how can we change the training uh, arena to make it more uh, effective? Well, we may need to be very innovative here. We may need to think about uh, off having a virtual training offering uh, across hospitals, across regions. We might need to look at the increased use of sim simulation uh, at, at a basic training level and the increased use of uh, models for therapeutic intervention. Specifically, for the time being, however, uh, we have to acknowledge that the best we have been able to do across the specialty is to uh, uh, work with others to ensure that the ARCP10 supplementary coding for our trainees is now acknowledged so that COVID-19 will not adversely impact uh, on their training record. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, Ian, could I ask um, for, for your thoughts, please? Yeah, Phil, I um, Catherine's Catherine's articulated them very well. Training is a, is, is, a, is a big concern. You know, COVID is going to be here in some shape or form for the foreseeable future. Um, and we're going to have to work around it rather than, I think, work to an assumption that it's gone. Um, it's going to affect how we deliver endoscopy services. And endoscopy is going to be a less available resource than it was previously, and we have to protect it and use it for those uh, most likely to benefit. 
And we've talked about how that can be done, but I think the landscape going forward, um, there is an opportunity here. I think people often sort of joke about this, you know, the opportunity of a crisis. And underpinning everything, we've got senior decision makers, we've got consultants triaging and re-triaging, filtering and redirecting uh, the vast volume of referrals we, we normally get and doing it very well. And there's an opportunity here to look at these risk stratification tools, um, biomarkers like QFIT in the symptomatic pathway, and an opportunity to update and overhaul the NG12 sort of two-week wait guidance, um, and to really look at innovations in uh, non-invasive testing or less invasive testing, the possible expanded role of colon capsule or other capsule endoscopy, enhanced cross-sectional imaging, etc. And I think we need to explore these, but rather than just rush to them, it's got to be done in a systematic way with good quality data collection so that any, any policy changes or protocol changes we make are underpinned by some decent quality data. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of that opportunity as um, you know, I think was, I'm going to give you another quote. I'll give you Maynard Keynes who said that you have know, something along and I might've got the words slightly wrong, but the difficulty lies in not in adopting new ideas, but in, in letting go of the old ones. And I think sometimes letting go of old ways of doing things is extremely difficult, but we're now faced with that. And I think the BASG um, is doing a lot to try and lead on this, but we are working very closely, as Catherine said, with JAG, for example, and Mark Coleman, the chairman, has been hugely supportive. Uh, and I know that they are leading on things like unit design and layout, um, workforce and workforce well-being and, and infection control and we, we look forward to carrying on working with them to try and shape our response longer term to the challenges ahead. Thank you Ian and, and thank you very much uh, to both of you once again um, but a huge thanks not just uh, from me but from Professor Mark Beattie, the Frontline Gastroenterology team but from the entire gastroenterology family and community for your huge efforts. Please, um, both of you, take care of yourselves and your respective families. Listeners can access the BSG guidance on the BSG website um, and also all the other papers produced by, um, via, um, by the BSG team, by the BSG website, the FG website and the GUT website links, and there's a BMJ COVID hub also. Thank you for listening to this podcast and please join us again in the future.